You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey there, Shortwavers. Aaron Scott here. With Regina Barber. And Emily Kwong. And today we're back with another roundtable discussion of science in the news. Where we look to social media, academic journals, and the headlines for science nuggets that catch our eyes. And in honor of the recent holiday, today's theme is all things Valentine's. Love and romance. We've got stories about how chocolate may be good for you with some major caveats. The science behind the most recent massive solar flare. And a pheromone discovery in tsetse flies, also known as tsetse flies, that could help rein in the diseases they spread by controlling their mating. Those all roughly fit into the Valentine's Day theme, right? Yeah, for science nerds. (laughs) So today on the show, science love straight from Cupid's bow. You're listening to Shortwave, the daily science love cast from NPR. Oh, no. Okay, Emily, Regina, let us start this with a highly scientific poll. What is objectively the best part about Valentine's Day? Mm, I'm not a big Valentine's Day fan. I'm a huge Valentine's Day fan. It's 100% (laughs) flowers out of nowhere. Uh I love a good arrangement or just like a single statement rose. Very Beauty and the Beast, but less tragic. I mean, I I love chocolate, though. I love dark chocolate. I love it. Fair. Thank you, Regina. That was the correct answer. Objectively, (laughs) best part scientifically of Valentine's Day is the chocolate, which, you know, in recent years has kind of gotten this reputation as a superfood. I'm sure you've heard all the claims about how it's full of bioactive compounds called flavanols. They're antioxidants. They're anti-inflammatory. They can help lower your blood pressure. I mean, there's one big study that found that people who consumed 500 milligrams of cocoa flavanols each day for several Mm. years actually saw a 27% reduction in cardiovascular disease. Oh, I I see this heart relationship. It's feel-good science where chocolate is like going to save us all, right? So given all these studies, it's no surprise that chocolate companies, of course, want to be able to make health claims on their labels. And so (laughs) a couple years ago, one petitioned the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And as NPR's own Allison Aubrey reported earlier this week, the FDA has finally released a ruling about the health benefits of chocolate. Ooh, the top dogs have weighed in. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what does the FDA say? I totally want to know. You want to know what it does for your heart, huh? So Valentine's Day (laughs) Eve. So In that language of love, the FDA ruled it's complicated. Of course. They found that there is very limited credible scientific evidence that high flavanol cocoa powder may reduce cardiovascular disease if it contains at least 4% of naturally conserved cocoa flavanols. Oh, so best case scenario, it has to be 4%. What kind of chocolate is that? Yeah, so what that means is like dark, bitter cocoa powder. Like we're not talking most of the chocolate bars you you buy off the shelf. In fact, the FDA says that this ruling doesn't apply even to chocolate, that it applies to high flavanol cocoa powder. Dark, dark, bitter stuff that we'll probably start to see companies adding to their products. But um, really what it comes down to is most of the chocolate we buy on the shelves contain a lot of sugar, fat, and calories that many other studies have shown can lead to weight gain. So, I mean, I hate to say it, but heart health is really not an excuse to eat chocolate after all. Yeah, I knew this this had to be too good to be true. 
And when I would pass by the like dark chocolate uh, Hershey's Kisses bowls at the doctor's office and stuff myself yep. silly yep. with them, I felt so no. good. Like, oh, yeah, you've just extended your life by a mm-hmm. few more days. That's not true at all. No, it sounds I like. hate to say it, Emily, but <sighs> no. Nope, not going to be any FDA health claims behind those Hershey Kisses. No, it's too good to be true, of course. Um, But sticking with our theme, Gina, you have a story about one of the most cosmically romantic things that happened on Valentine's Day, right? Yeah, the sun put on a little show on Valentine's Day. Ooh, what happened? Um, It was a light show, actually, and it started over the weekend, February 11th, with a couple of solar events. Like, first, there was this major solar flare, you know, an explosion of energy or light from the surface of the sun. Sounds hot. Um, (laughs) How major are we talking? (laughs) So there are a few classifications that go from, like, weakest to strongest. It goes A, B, C, and then M, and then X. And this X-class flare was the strongest class. In these solar flares, I mean, this one sounded pretty powerful. Um, did it affect anything on Earth? Yeah, it actually affected radio communication in South America. I talked to Alex Young and Alexa Hofford at NASA about this, and they said that the radiation from these bursts, they travel from the sun at the speed of light to Earth, that's about mm-hmm. eight minutes. And the amount of radiation actually heats up the ionosphere. This is the upper part of the atmosphere that yeah. reflects radio waves. So shortwave radios <laughs> don't work when these large flares happen. Shortwave radio, bringing it home, Gina. Yes, I'm amazing. Um, And I mean, you did an episode about how these solar flares actually create the Northern Lights, right? Yeah, that relates to the second event that happened this weekend. Um, After the flare, there can be a coronal mass ejection. Hmm. Um, And that's when the sun shoots matter, not just light towards Earth. And it can take days for that matter to get to Earth. And this happened on February 11th. Um, It was another event, a filament, like those ribbons or loops that you see on the sun, and it broke. And that matter comes to Earth, it gets stuck in the magnetic field, and it smashes into our atmosphere, which produces the Northern Lights. Gorgeous. So so I'm guessing that means they were like just in time to put on this beautiful light show for any lovers strolling out in, you know, the far the northern hemisphere. Aaron's yeah. always looking for date ideas. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. So a couple days after February 11th, you know, all this matter hit our atmosphere just in time for Aurora to happen on the night of Valentine's Day. So love is clearly in the air. Yes, it clearly is for us. And seamless transition for flies. Um, (laughs) Nothing says romance like flies. Have you heard of the tetsi fly? They are the ones that cause sleeping sickness, right? Yeah, I've heard of them too. Did you really know that? I did actually know that. What? Okay, well, (laughs) I did not. So for people who are not as knowledgeable, these are large, biting, bloodthirsty flies. They are kind of horrible. They're common in tropical regions throughout the continent of Africa. Super romantic. Yeah. yeah. So Where is this going? <laughs> okay, I, I promise I'll bring it all around. First, though, we have to talk about these flies because they live off the blood of vertebrates. And that's a okay. serious problem because as they're nibbling, they are spreading disease. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, Erin, most seriously, tetsi flies can cause life-threatening human diseases if untreated. 
and they kill approximately 3 million cattle each year in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, uh, this is definitely not Valentine's material, Emily. Thank you. This sounds like a very big problem. Yes, it's a big problem that kind of has a love solution. Okay, Okay. hear me out. Mm -hmm. So for more than a century, scientists have been trying to figure out how tsetse flies find each other to mate because... If there's less of them making babies, there's less disease to go around. Okay. Right? Yes, yes. Yes. So what happened is this. A group of researchers at Yale University published a paper in Science this week, which named, down to the chemical, how these flies are attracting and finding a suitable mate. They figured out several pheromones that elicited, quote, strong behavioral responses from the male. I will let you use your imagination as to what those strong behavioral sponsors were. I want to know and what the... if your the... kids are listening, I apologize, but I'm just doing my job because this is a science podcast. What, what yes. does love smell like to a fly? Like, is it, is it like rotting meat? Is that the smell I mean... of love for a fly? Excellent um, question. I don't think it can be given a human approximation, but I will give you this metaphor. Okay. So how they figured this out is by creating a fly perfume. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking, okay. Real marketing potential. <laughs> yeah. So what they did is they took these virgin female tetsi flies oh, Lord. and they soaked them <laughs> to extract their pheromones. And then they doused decoy flies, like fake flies, with the pheromone concoction. And they put the decoy flies into a chamber with a male fly and measured what happened. And most of the flies, within seconds, were on that decoy. And a lot of them actually stayed there for an hour, just hoping something would happen. Wow, if Calvin (laughs) Klein could bottle this, they'd make themselves a fortune. (laughs) Right? Like, what is going on? The human variety, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, like, right, what are these chemicals? They used um, something called gas chromatography mass spectrometry to figure out the identity of the pheromones. And one of the strongest was called methyl pomatoxin. Methylpalmitoliate, or MPO, which the paper said acted like an aphrodisiac. Wow. And to pair the chemical with its receptor, the researchers actually actually looked at the antenna of the tetsi fly, and they identified a class of neurons that respond to the MPO. So this, like, aphrodisiac is real. They figured out the chemical, it worked on the fake flies, and they figured out the, the neurons in the receptors of the male flies. And so mm-hmm. what are they going to do with this research? Yeah, well... You know, this discovery is exciting because, like I said, we didn't really know how these flies were chemically communicating to mate before. And now that we do know, this can be added to strategies for controlling their population and the spread of disease, maybe using the chemical to lure flies into traps. Um, with all or... those decoy flies that you want to hang out with all the time. <laughs> Pretty Something flies. Like that. Yeah. Something like Pretty that. Yeah. At the, like, bar. the paper was done by people who are primarily biologists, not people working on the ground as epidemiologists. But with climate change, the range of the tetsi fly is expected to increase. So it's all the more pressing to be, you know, doing this work on the level of chemistry. And by chemistry, I mean chemistry. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the chemistry of love. <laughs> That's right. Thank you for bringing that back for us, Emily, to our theme. Um, Listeners, if you have science news you want us to dig into at Shortwave, email us at shortwave at npr.org. 
This episode was produced by Burley McCoy, edited by our supervising producer, Rebecca Ramirez, and fact-checked by Anil Oza. The audio engineer was Josh Newell. Brendan Crump is our podcast coordinator. Beth Donovan is the senior director of programming. And Anya Grundman is the senior vice president of programming. I'm Emily Kwong. I'm Regina Barber. And I'm Aaron Scott. Thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR. <laughs>